working hard on something that doesn't matter is not going to put your career forward. And I think that's particularly true of being a department or a campus citizen. everybody. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory podcast. I'm Kim Skorupski here looking at Dr. Mary Dean Sorsonelli. Hi, Mary Dean. Hi, Kim. How are you? I'm great. Well, everybody, Dr. Wendy Ward, as you all know by now, one of our frequent flyers on the Faculty Factory podcast, did a great service in addition to her podcast episodes by recommending that we get in touch with Dr. Sorsonelli because she has a very famous top 10 list that she wrote back as an essay in 2004 based on her hundreds of conversations and mentoring relationships with uh, early faculty members and deans and department directors. And she wrote this essay, so she'll tell you about how it came about, but it's she just told me it's become the most widely requested piece of um, literature, if you will, and, and helpful hints that she's been asked for to date. But Let's back up and let me tell you who Dr. Sorsonelli is for those of you who are not familiar with her history. She's currently a senior fellow at University of Massachusetts. She's a co-PI on an NSF grant, an undergraduate STEM grant through the AAU, and she's the former associate provost for teaching and faculty development at University of Massachusetts Amherst. Is that right, Mary Dean? Did I get all that correct? Yes, you got it absolutely correct. Uh, And that was sort of a long list, but I think that encapsulates my career. I also spent a couple of years at Mount Hoyo College, uh, women's uh, small liberal arts women's college as a um, scholar in residence. So uh, I got the angle on, you know, what a small liberal arts college faculty life is like as well. Oh, I love it. I'm a liberal arts baby. I grew up in a small liberal arts college, Gannon University, back in my hometown, Erie, Pennsylvania, sociology major. I'm all about small uh, liberal arts colleges and taught a lot when I was getting my PhD. So I love the liberal arts uh, college environment. So I'm glad you have we have that in common. Mary, I don't know, what is your background in your academic training? My background is actually in English. I have an undergraduate degree and a master's degree uh, in English literature and language and writing. And then when I went on for my doctoral degree, I was involved in uh, one of the very early faculty development programs called the Clinic to Improve University Teaching. Um, Yeah, actually, uh, interestingly named. Uh, because the the founder of it was, as, as I understand it, a pre-med student. And just like that idea of clinic, of course, that has both a positive image, but also kind of a negative, you know, the sick teacher going to get cured at the clinic. Um, but they had a wonderful program of consultation with faculty, a training program. So I moved into the area of teaching and faculty development and got my doctoral degree in educational policy, leadership, and uh, higher education, teaching and learning, faculty development. Oh, my gosh. So this is this is from what year? What are we talking now? Oh, gosh, that would have been back in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. So uh, a long time back. Oh my gosh! So you are definitely a founding um, a founding mother of this field. <laughs> and that's why your list is so famous. 
Yes, I guess so. I certainly was in it very early on um, and founded a center for teaching and and faculty development at Indiana University in Bloomington, and then moved to Massachusetts and founded a center for teaching and faculty development at the University of Massachusetts. So had experience and I've traveled, you know, all over the world helping uh, centers get established, review their practices, help them set up programs and mentoring, scholarly writing, teaching and learning. So have had a I've been to, I think, 15 countries, but that's been on hold since the pandemic. I was doing a lot of traveling before that. Wow. Uh, this, this is, um, I love hearing people's beginnings. And so it's just so fascinating to me how you started in English and English literature and, and came to um, academic medicine and looking at um. teaching and, and, and all just these faculty development that I never even heard about, you know, gosh, 16 or 17 years ago, I'd never even knew it was a thing. And so I, I love when I meet people who say, yeah, back in the seventies, we were talking about this. This is, this is nothing new. This is something we we knew was important and um, we're building on this. So I love, I love that history. I'll have to go back and learn more about the clinic. That's an interesting concept because now we're talking, you know, um, you know, coaching, coaching for clinical based practices and all the coaching around education. And so lots of conversations that are, I'm sure, right up your alley. Yes. Are you familiar with uh, the pod network? Uh, that- yes. Yes. So I was very early on in that group as well, which was um, really a professional association for directors of centers for teaching and learning and faculty development. Yeah. <laughs> That's that's why now now that's why um the pod I remember looking that up when I was in Chicago in 2003 and we had a re- we started a research mentoring program and then the teaching mentoring program and again I knew nothing about this so it just it goes to show you that you know here you are um, way back uh, doing this for oh my gosh 50, 50 years now almost a, a, your whole career building this and reminding us that there's just such depth and rich history that I see so many times I I'm, we have just hiring people and coaching people who think who they're, who they've done the training, their MDs, their PhDs in a specific, a, a science, or, and they don't really know anything about program evaluation or the scholarship and teaching and scholarship or faculty development per se. And then they want to put something together and don't realize that there's this is a whole field. Like there, there, there are scholarly articles about this, and you can't just kind of like wing it and throw together a survey. That there's a rich history here of people who have thought carefully and really hard about this, and written books and papers, and and a lot of times our eyes go, "Really?" I say, "Oh yes, yes. This is a this is very well thought out. There are people who've come before you who have thought about this. So don't waste your time in trying to reinvent this stuff. Get into the source and alley literature. See what what's been done. It's um, there's a lot to work with already. You don't have to recreate everything. That's right. And we've learned a lot from the medical field, especially around mentoring. Um, I founded a program at UMass Amherst called Mutual Mentoring, which has kind of had legs too and has been in many uh, NSF advance grant proposals. And I've traveled to a lot of campuses around that. But we learned a lot also from 
um, the medical field, which did a lot on mentoring and has a strong interest in that. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. You're just, we're all, of course, now coaching is a big thing. So yes, remember, yes, we started absolutely. mentoring and sponsoring and coaching and everything kind of comes full circle, isn't it? Yeah, it sure does. <sighs> all right, Mary Dean, I want to hear about this top 10 list that um, is such a top things that they, that top top 10 things that faculty want to hear that you gleaned through, again, those hundreds of relationships and conversations with leaders up and down um, the chain. So, so why don't you just kick, kick us off and tell us what, how the, you know, maybe the, how the list came about and what you, you know, what you want to, how you want to tee it up. Yeah. So I wrote this little essay called the top 10 things new faculty would like to hear from their colleagues And it really came out of um, sitting in many new faculty orientations and programs for early career faculty and faculty communities and so on. And thinking about what advice do I wish I had received when I started out? What advice to do mid-career and senior colleagues um, tell me they wish they had heard when they started out? Um, And what kind of issues do new faculty struggle with today? And so I um, looked at, you know, the research, which had identified a couple of core issues um, and interwoven concerns that new faculty have. Um, They want a more comprehensible tenure or performance evaluation system, the whole piece around development and evaluation. Uh, They wanted a stronger sense of community. Little surprised that sometimes (laughs) academia was not as communal as they had hoped it would be and a more balanced and integrated life in terms of their research, teaching, service, and life outside of work. So um, having looked at that, I started thinking about all the advice that I had heard uh, from peers and colleagues, and as you said, senior faculty, department chairs, early career faculty, and thought about that and um, just decided to offer some advice based on what I had heard, sort of talking to new faculty. And I put together in those three areas, 10 tips that I had hoped that faculty would be, would find helpful in terms of advice. So that's kind of where it started out. And then as, as you mentioned, it had legs. I get lots of requests still from an associate dean for faculty development or undergraduate education asking if they can reprint it or send it to their new faculty. So um, it's always surprising to me of all the scholarly things I've done, this little essay really has had uh, a lot of momentum. I, I, I love it. And just while I'm going to pause here, but I'm going to say this at the end as well. But if you want to get in touch and get that list in print from Dr. Sorsonelli, you can email her at dean, D-E-A-N-E, at umass.edu. Again, dean, D-E-A-N-E, at umass.edu. Okay, great. Right. Yes, I'd be happy to share it. Okay, go ahead. So my number one is remember that you're great. And I'm sort of talking as a chair or a senior colleague, really that you get hired for a reason. And that I think one thing I've noticed, especially with women and underrepresented faculty, that they somehow think they faked their way into it. The imposter syndrome, oh my gosh, you know, and now I'm here and, um, My response to that is, you know, we're pretty smart judges of quality. 
and we hire faculty for success. And I think that's something fa new faculty need to hear from their colleagues that, you know, newcomers are going to bring lots of new energy and ideas to a department. Um, they're going to help improve the department. They're sort of rising stock in the department because it's an investment in the future of the department. And so, um, even though they're great, they're not expected to know everything and, you know, that they should come in thinking everybody here wants me to be successful and um, I need to ask questions and ask for help. I don't need to know everything when I walk in the door. So that reminder of, yes, you're here because we think you're going to be successful, um, not because we want to trip you up and toss you out the door after two or three years. And so that was tip number one. Love it. Shall I just keep going? And then, I, yeah, I mean, I, I'm thinking I could amen, hallelujah, everything you're saying, Mary Dean, because the messages go both ways. So I can, I can probably, everybody knows like I'll, I'll yammer too much. So I, I don't want to talk too much, but yes, that message is so important. And I think it's undervalued. People, leaders, people like me who put together orientations and new faculty welcome events. And we think, well, of course they know they're, they're Hopkins. Of course they know they're, they're good. They're cl clearly credentialed. And I, and I still think, no, I really think we need to celebrate more and, and um, have, have these events be welcoming. And we're so happy you're here. And, you know, this is going to be a great welcome to the club. Welcome to the family. You're, you're part of us. It's like a, you want this to be a wonderful celebratory welcome. And that's what I, I love to impart that feeling that faculty know, no, we, you're here because we see something in you. you you're already great. Um, you're going to do even better things, and we're here to support you. And don't be shy. All those things you're saying are, are wonderful. And I don't think we do that enough because we, unfortunately, people come in the door and they're hitting the ground running, and not only running, they're sprinting. And mm -hmm. then we forget to remind them, gosh, welcome. You know, we're glad you're here. And Take a minute, you know, like when you can, it's, 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 um, it's an ongoing thing that people feel don't feel valued. And when faculty satisfaction surveys, you know, a lot of times faculty feel like I'm just a replaceable cog in a mm -hmm. wheel, mm -hmm. in a machine. And so I really think it is important as leaders that we remember to celebrate successes and to not that everybody needs external validation, but, um, it's nice to feel like noticed that, hey, we see you, Mary Dean, and we see you, Kim. Yeah, you, you're you doing great things. Don't worry. We're not going to, like you said, we're not here to, you know, find you messing up. So this is why I'm going to try to refrain myself from talking, Mary Dean, because I get so excited about things. And I just want to, again, shout at the rooftops. Yes, yes, yes. So thank you. Number one, remembering that you're great. Yes. And it really connects with number two, which is you don't have to be Superman or Superwoman tomorrow. Huh. And um, the point here is that, you know, they look at their senior colleagues and their outstanding teachers. They've got a daunting research program. They've got lots of grants. They're president of their professional society and so on and so on. And you don't have to be there yet. It's, it's a, you know, academia is a long road. And what I find um, oftentimes, and I remember this several times in a faculty learning community, a new faculty learning community I had, uh, after we had really established trust and risk-taking, one of the sessions they asked for was something on the imposter syndrome, sort of this sense of, yes, everybody's telling me I'm great. They're telling me I'm Superman or Superwoman, but 
I'm, I'm not feeling that myself. I'm worried, can I make it here with all these illustrious people around me? So the second reminder was, you're going to get there. You're going to be like your colleagues, but you don't have to do it in your first year. You're, you, you know, look around at those people, pick up tips from them, but don't feel um, you have to be perfect. In fact, there was a, a, an author who did a study of new faculty and found that we expect faculty to hit the ground running very quickly and be fast out of the gate, all these metaphors of speed. And yet the research shows it takes two or three years to be fully established as a new early career faculty member. It doesn't happen in two or three months. It usually takes people a little bit of time, um, a little more bit of time to get acclimated and established in their career. And so we remind faculty of that to new faculty. This isn't a two-month venture and you're going to know the culture and the norms of your department and all your colleagues. You've got to give yourself some time and your colleagues need to give you some time. Um, you know, I've talked to folks about that annual review in year one. It should be developmental, not highly evaluative because young faculty, it's year one they're not fully established. You have, you know, we all have to remember that. And they need to say that back to us. I'm on a road. I'm on a path. I haven't got it fully figured out in year one. Mm -hmm. I love that. It, appropriate social comparisons. We tend to compare our innards to people's outards <laughs> and then determine that we are somehow inadequate because yeah, you, it's not the appropriate level of comparison. We're looking at the people who are so far ahead of us. And everyone's such high achievers in academia. So they just think that, of course, they're going to shoot ahead. And it's a pacing. It's a recognition of I have to learn the culture and who am I and where are my gifts and where are my strengths. And I think you're, you're so right, Mary Dean, that we have to balance those messages on both ends leaders, colleagues, but also as new people to an, to an institution of kind of maybe tamper, tamping down our enthusiasm to be everything, do everything right away, hurry up, get the grant, see the patients, grow my practice, do the research, write the papers, get the, get the books, do the mentoring, coaching, teaching, educating, it, and then have a family and have a life. It's, it's, you know, it's too much. And then we, we, uh, we should ourselves to death and we, when we really start to beat ourselves up, um, which is not fair. It's not kind. It's not gentle. It's not sustainable. Love yeah. It. When I, when I first started, I used to work with faculty and say, okay, let's do a three to five year plan for your career and lay it out. And actually in my later years as in working or in these later years and working with new and early career faculty, I say, let's do a one-year plan because for exactly the reason you said, I feel like people get paralyzed if they're projecting too far into the future. And so it's what's one step you can take in this semester to improve your scholarship or your teaching or your mm -hmm. um, citizenship? You know what? Let's think about a couple of small steps you can take in your in this year versus this big five-year plan that people have to throw out half of it because how do we predict the future anyways? Could we have ever predict where we'd be now two years ago? Never. Sort of making the plan manageable has been something I've done much more recently with faculty that I'm working with. And again, it goes back to, you don't have to be Superman, you know, 
tomorrow. And let, let's sort of think about where we are now and give you the breathing space to take some early steps to move you forward. I love it. I love it. What's number three? Number three is figure out what matters. And this is around tenure and performance evaluation. Every department that I've been in and every college and university differs in the expectations for research, teaching, and service. So here again, I think early career faculty will often say, I'm getting all this conflicting advice. But my advice back to them is just don't try to figure this out on your own. What you need to do is talk to a lot of people and get their perspective and sort out through it to what makes sense to you and where are you getting more common themes uh, in what you're hearing. And so talk to your department chair uh, and your dean and uh, talk to recently tenured faculty members. Talk to that older senior colleague who might have a lot of experience that they can share with you. Um, try to sit on a department personnel committee or talk to people on the personnel committee. One of the groups that I brought into our faculty learning community was a personnel committee, a college or a university personnel committee. So early career faculty could talk about, you know, what is it you expect in year one or year two or year three? Um, Another thing I find that early career faculty sometimes don't make appointments to talk to their department chair after they get an annual review or after they've gotten a teaching uh, observation. And so I always encourage them, make an appointment at least once a year to talk about your goals, what's going on with your research and, and teaching sort of, and your tenure timetable. Don't hide your wares under a bushel basket as as the old saying goes, but be sure to make those appointments and talk to people who could, you know, consult with you and provide feedback. So again, uh, figure out what matters by reaching out to a network of people, not just one. You're talking about being proactive. I love that. Rather than, well, nobody, my mentor didn't get in touch with me, or my division director didn't contact me, or my department chair didn't email me. Yes, and you're fully empowered to reach out yourself, as you said. So being proactive and taking those steps, putting it in your calendar as a regular standing appointment every month, am I talking to someone? Am I taking some time to build relationships? to build community, my tribe of people who are going to be there for whatever group, group coaching and just support and and building a team of people who are in the know for things. I love that. Yeah. I mean, you have to have that career agency because nobody's going to care about your career as much as you. So you really need to think about what it is you need and reach out to those who can help and support you and answer questions. That's right. Being proactive taking agency for your own career is something I, I'm i always saying to new faculty, don't wait, like, where is my mentor? Why has my mentor not you know, reached out to me? Reach out to them. Yeah, yeah Mary, you know, I think that the, what I see is with early career faculty, they're so used to, or we're so used to coming out of school where you, you're, you know, your calendar, your schedule, your agenda, your curriculum was handed to you. You knew, well, I've got to do this and I've got to do that and residency fellowship and take this exam and that exam and write the dissertation. And you kind of had a marching order. You knew what was on the to-do list. Yeah. Then you, you be, you're a new faculty member or you're in a new institution. You, you know, 
yeah, I know I have to do certain things, but it's really not, it is not handed to you. So a lot of faculty kind of flounder and wonder, well, nobody's telling me to do these things. How did I know? It was not, I would never learned how to network or I never learned how to communicate and how do I do these things? So it's a little bit of a, sometimes of a hiccup, which is why I think it's important that you, when you said with number two, you don't have to be, you know, the superhero today or tomorrow, that that's when you take a moment and also with your saying, figuring out what matters, learn the culture, take a beat, read between the lines and listen between the lines. When people say, um, I reached out to, or I read, or I went to this seminar, or so-and-so told me, like, how are other people getting information and look for um, the way the culture works where you are? And so I think that's figuring out what matters is by listening and learning what other people are doing. So really great, um, proactive, empowered mentality. And I think that's, you know, that's a big thing with mentoring too. you know, build your network. Um, You you may need to do that because others may, um, you know, nobody's going to care about building that network as much as you do. Yeah. So it's a very much a theme around agency being proactive and, um, figuring out what matters. And the counter to that is deciding what doesn't matter, which is the next point. So, you know, everybody works hard in academia. It's really rare to find somebody who isn't overworked and and working really hard, but working hard on something that doesn't matter is not going to put your career forward. And I think that's particularly true of being a department or a campus citizen, trying to figure out what kinds of service responsibilities you take should take on in your department and on your campus. And, and certainly it's hard to say no. Um, and, and I know there are lots of websites talking about how do you say no and workshops and webinars on that. But um, some of the things that I thought um, were helpful is, you know, serve in places that are going to be helpful to you. So for example, maybe working on the department's website is not so useful, but what about if you were on the undergraduate or graduate admissions program? That might bring you some really great students that you otherwise would not have met if you didn't do those interviews or for postdocs, you know, grads, undergrads, or postdocs. Um, Being in charge of a departmental seminar or a college level seminar, it helps you establish relationships in your department because you're talking to people about who you might bring in. It also helps you reach outside your campus to connect with colleagues that you'd like to invite in to build your own mentoring network. Those might be individuals who could end up writing a letter for your tenure file or an annual review, or inviting you to a professional conference, or inviting you to speak with them or write with them. And I've seen that happen so many times. Mm -hmm. So sort of figuring out what doesn't matter. And if you're going to do work that's supposedly often we think doesn't matter, then figure out what of that work does matter, what where's some leverage. And I think that's particularly true of service work and citizenship work, which is seen as sort of grunt work, but it does not have to be. It can be very focused and directed towards career advancement. I like that sensibility that because you're right, we often talk about uncompensated effort. Like why would we invest in things that are uncompensated, particularly uh, clinicians who are 
held to the you know RVU generating patient money and if it's not going to bring money that's going to count toward my bottom line why would I engage in that and you know you're so smart to bring out the um the nuance of how can I leverage this that maybe it is on my heart to serve and gain gain something around like you said, a teaching experience or a, um, a colleagues or trainees or data access to data or a patient population for data or um, other other you know learning opportunity just to understand politics and that that to me is um, sometimes it does take a minute to see well if this is important to me what how can I derive some value of it from it. And if not, can I put some parameters around how long or how much time I will allow myself to expend on that? Mm-hmm. And then maybe also in part of my figuring out what matters and talking to other people and, and being proactive is asking them, can you give me some uh, counsel or advice on looking back now? Did you do something that maybe you wish in retrospect now didn't really work out? to, you know, some lessons learned that I can learn from you. And we tend to think, well, if, uh, a lot of faculty say, well, I've got invited to write a book chapter and, and book chapters or writing books, as we all know, is incredibly, incredibly time consuming and laborious. And, and many times in many institutions, books, depending on your field, don't count as much as peer reviewed publications. So that's kind of one of those hard discussions you have with people you have to you know run the calculations there and talk to people who've done it to say maybe you shouldn't be reviewing for 15 journals and I know you're learning a lot but at some point there's like a saturation point where you're reviewing more than you're writing and is impacting deleterious you know what's going on so the, the, it kind of goes both ways of what do you want love to do but let's be strategic about how we do it and if it's going to count, and if it's not going to count the way we're used to traditionally, how else can we make it matter? So I love the way you flip that around. Right, right. And I think your point, I, I like your word strategic. I mean, I think that's really important that people are strategic. So I can see, I've seen early career faculty be thrilled that they've been asked to review a manuscript for a book or a peer-reviewed article, but they get so caught up in reviewing, which you know, and I know takes a lot of time to read something and then think about it and review it, but that's invisible work. Mm -hmm. So I've learned over time for myself and and counsel or early career faculty, if it's a topic you're really interested in, you're going to learn from it. You're going to review it and know what to say. If you're randomly taking review articles that's invisible work that's not going to count. Exactly. So, yeah. Um, my point five, and, and you'll have to reframe this maybe a little bit for the medical field, but I put teaching matters. And so in a doctoral or postdoc program, often it's external funding, journal articles, books. I mean, those things may be all that mattered. But once you're in the field teaching and a commitment to working with students matters to many institutions, and even more so now as we try to pull in a more diverse um, and and deal with issues of diversity, equity, inclusion, we're really trying to open our doors to a broader pool of students. Um, Those students need good teachers. And so also in, in all the literature on teaching, it finds that early career faculty find a lot of satisfaction 
and they value being a good teacher and an advisor to students. What they find challenging is how do you sustain satisfaction when teaching is poorly evaluated or undervalued by the department? And so um, I think early career faculty need help in thinking about um, you know, why you're taking on teaching um, and also the idea that you're gonna improve over time. You Again, you don't have to be the perfect teacher. Uh, there are a lot of skills, it's a journey uh, that even senior faculty are constantly learning new things, particularly in this new online environment. But there are a lot of resources now that didn't exist a decade or two ago. There are a lot of free resources on teaching. You know, I put down there's a uh, Patricia Cross Academy, which has a book and also a whole set of videos on great teachers. There's a new program from the Harvard Graduate School of Education that includes medical clips of uh, medical students called Instructional Moves. It's really wonderful where you watch a video of a clip from a classroom and then the instructor and their students talk about why they made the instructional moves they did, what worked, what didn't. They do a lot with cases, simulations. Um, in fact, I just I'm, I'm working on a review for that book and the the medical field of cases and simulations I found just fascinating mm-hmm. and really uh attention grabbing. I loved reading those. There was one where a 17 year old came into the emergency room and he has had trouble breathing. And honestly, Kim, my heart was pounding reading this excerpt and knowing there was a video for me to watch because these young medical students were trying to figure out what was wrong. And their instructor was on the side, very gently coaching them, but making them figure out what was going on with this kid and his oxygen was lowering and they were getting more panicked and trying to figure out and asking each other questions. It was, it was great. And I thought, wow, that's the kind of teaching tips that um, would be terrific for any instructor to review what those students and that instructor did and think about what were the instructional moves that made his simulation or case so compelling? How did he manage that teaching process of teaching through a case or a simulation? Was that a, a, pay, a an active patient or that was a real patient? Real, real. Or, well, you have no, to us. no, no. The student was an actor. Okay. Okay. Yes. 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 I feel like I was, why, I was like, all of a sudden we're talking about like a student. No, but, but a really good actor that made, that made my heart pound a little bit. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out, are they going to solve this problem? You know, I'm watching his oxygen get lower and his breathing get more labored and, uh, it just pulled me into it, and uh, it's a free resource. If you, it's called instructional, instructional moves. M O V E S. Yes, from Harvard. Oh, I love from it. Harvard. Yes. Well, you know, we here at Hopkins, we are pretty <laughs> deep into exploring a new promotion pathway for educators. So, mm. Hopkins historically, for you know the hundred plus years, we've only had one research track: the traditional research um, scientist. You know. To be promote to promoted to be promoted on the research track. Well, two years or so ago, we came up with a clinical excellence promotion pathway. So now we have two ways to get promoted here in the School of Medicine at Hopkins: the traditional research or the clinical um, clinicians of excellence. And of course, then education was like 
running right parallel with that um, as, as something that we feel like that we have to provide more explicit criteria for the physicians and the scientists who um, do education. That's primarily their expertise and their, their way of contributing to, to science is through education. And the irony is that, you know, we're all in universities and what is the, you know, the heart and soul of universities is teaching. You know, we all teach. We're all involved in education, every single solitary one of us. And somebody could say, well, I'm, I'm sitting at a bench all day long doing basic science. You're teaching. <laughs> I'm seeing only seeing patients. I'm not in a classroom. You're teaching. You're teaching your patients. You're teaching your colleagues, the trainees routing through. So it's all it's something we all do. And yet we, you know, as our institutions, we fail to recognize. I think it's because we just take it for granted. That of course we all have been educated. So since we've been educated, we can then educate. And so we fail to recognize again that as an art, as a science, the practice of education and educational scholarship is something that should be uh, rewarded and should be apparent and should be um, studied and practiced. So I think I think it's really really important that you. Um, highlight this in your list. And we definitely all um, can learn a lot by being thoughtful about all of teaching and education and how it is so central in everything that we do in academia. Yes. And, and I'm on an advisory board for a really interesting project at the National Science Foundation, and it's called T-E-V-A-L, T-E-V-A-L.net. And uh, what they're trying to do is really think much more broadly about uh, how we measure the quality mm. of teaching. And so, as you said, they're looking, they have a rubric and they're looking at not just the classroom, but the advising and the mentoring and the course design and the assessment. And so looking at a much broader frame of how, you know, how are individuals contributing to the teaching and educational mission of a department and of a campus. And the National Academies, I think it's the National Academies of Sciences, have started a roundtable um, to really grapple with these issues and how do we change the evaluation of educational contributions, uh, particularly in, in high-powered research universities. So um, there is work afoot to rethink the evaluation of teaching and see if we can more value it better, but also evaluate it as well mm -hmm. so that it gets into more fully evaluated in promotion and tenure decisions. Love it. Wonderful. Number six, yes. <laughs> let's see if we can get our way through here, um, making a plan. Mm -hmm. And so um, I just had a couple of points on uh, when you make a plan, as we talked earlier, maybe not the five-year plan, but a shorter plan, but play to your strengths. Um, I think that seems obvious, but I think with early career faculty, it can get lost. Um, you really need to think about what you know, what you're comfortable with, what, where's your reach, um, what you're ready to teach or do research on. So kind of cultivating the specialty that you uh, enjoy and do well, and whether that's in teaching large classes, a junior year writing program, a clinical program, um, it's going to make your teaching more coherent and more enjoyable. Um, 
And the same thing for your research. You know, what's what are the kind of questions you want to learn about? What are you really interested in want to explore? Is there a way you can do that? Not just sort of following what somebody else wants you to do or, you know, hooking onto a grant that's sort of outside your area of responsibility. So it's really capitalizing on your strengths. But at the same time, I think early career faculty also need to look at their department. Most departments have bylaws or um, planning documents that describe what their mission is, what they're interested in. And it's about fit. You know, you want to do your own thing, but are you going to fit into the needs of your department as well? It's that balance of um, striking out with the things you most enjoy and want to learn about, but also not being outside of the realm of what you were hired for, clearly. And I've talked to a lot of early career faculty who didn't even know that their department had bylaws or planning documents and sort of where they fit in that scheme. And in fact, some of them, um, some departments have what they're looking for in a new hire. And I say to early career faculty or new faculty, make sure you get that document that talked about when they hired you, what did they think you were going to bring to the department? Mm -hmm. And so that's just something that oftentimes I find new faculty didn't know and um, should be asking for, asking their department chair or the personnel committee that hired them. Mary Dean, I love this one again also because you're talking about that alignment and how that's a delicate balance of, I'm thinking when, when we write grant applications where you want to be innovative but not so far out of the box that mm -hmm. it's considered to be a little cuckoo and too risky. So it's the same kind of a struggle where you want to be in alignment with and recognizing, okay, I interviewed for X, was hired for X, the department does X, that's why I'm here, it kind of makes sense. And I have interest or opportunity or there's new, something newness or there's a need, there's a gap. And I feel like I can go here or I think that we can pivot there. So there's always that, again, political, what are people's motivations? Just politics, what motivates people? Mm -hmm. Making sure that you build a coalition of people who will be with you. So it's not just, oh, that new guy we hired or that new woman, she's always coming up with her crazy ideas and maybe rubbing people the wrong way. So understanding, getting the temperature of people in your department, where is their tolerance for risk and innovation? And can you bring people with you? So it's not just a Kim thing, it's a divisional thing or department yeah. thing. And then making the case of why it would be better for the patient or the learners or the investigators or the staff. So I think that is such a really imp an important point of, aligning the the plan the planful strategic planning of not it's not only about you it's about it's about others but not losing yourself but not being so far outside that you become alienated and you don't feel like you're part of the team because actually you're not because you've gone rogue or you've gone solo i'm not saying that's bad because sometimes people do people do go rogue and solo and and they make wonderful contributions but it's it's, I think it's more rare than it used to be. You know, it's more team, team-based and more collaborative. It's a lot smarter, isn't it? And it feels better when you 
also more humble to recognize that you may not be the keeper of all truth. And there may be some people who can contribute a lot in many different ways you've not even thought about. You may have a great idea, but if I talk to Mary Dean and she'll say, well, that's great. Have you thought of this, that, and the other? And I maybe hadn't even thought about that. So um, I think that's really important. I love it. And my last three are around collegiality and community. And I think the one, the, the next one was think mentors in the plural, because when I was working with faculty on, on mentoring, they often have this image in their head of a very hierarchical model of a senior person up here and the junior person down here and all the wisdom goes one way downward to the new faculty member. And my encouragement to them was to think of it as mutual mentoring, which is a phrase that we use, or yeah, parallel mentoring where um, your best mentor may be a senior person in your department, but you may, need a mentor around how to get started. And that could be someone in their second or third year, Mm -hmm. a a colleague who is one year ahead of you. Mm -hmm. Um, When you go up for tenure, it might be not a senior colleague who knows what it's like to go through because that was decades ago. It might be a newly tenured person who can talk to you better or, or with more knowledge around what the process looks like and how to think about going through. So again, that idea we talked about earlier of think about a network um, in your department, outside of your department, outside of your institution, but also not just seniors. Think about mid-career faculty and early career faculty. Peer support can be incredibly valuable for new and early career faculty to hear from other young faculty about you know, their strengths and their challenges and feel that you're not alone. And um, we had one of our departments in psychology had their second year faculty mentoring their first year faculty on getting started, because who knows it better than somebody who just went through it a year before. I love, love, love it. Mentoring is a peer, peer mentoring. It's a close runged ladder, close runged ladder where you picture people on a ladder and you're just reaching up, and someone's giving you a hand, you're reaching down, giving somebody else a hand up. So it's all that kind of, yeah, you're real close to somebody, but they have been there just a minute ago and they can give you some really great wisdom. And then your obligation, of course, is then to share it. So I, I love that idea of broadening the lens of mentoring from that Socratic method of the old wise old owl sitting on a limb um, versus <laughs> let's find mentoring um, everywhere we can. And related to that is inviting community. You know, when you talk to faculty, they will often say they wish there was more collegiality, um, that they expected not closed doors, but a community of scholars. And so um, my advice to young faculty is, you know, if you share your sense of excitement about your scholarship, about your teaching, you're going to bring in colleagues who are interested in your work. So invite them to attend one of your classes, invite them to read a manuscript when it's in draft form and say, this is developmental. I I haven't thought this all through, but I needed to talk, talk it through with someone who can take a look at this manuscript. Attend departmental colloquia. Some people are sort of grinding away in their offices with the door shut when they could be, you know, showing up for things. What was it? Or somebody said 90% of life is simply showing up. 
Right. Yeah. Spend time in the faculty lounge, you know, or someplace where faculty meet a faculty club where people meet to talk, to socialize, to network. Just think about those venues outside of your office. The, the, what I find for early career and new faculty is they often get locked into that office, grinding away, trying to get all their work done mm -hmm. and not putting their head up and saying, oh, I'm in I'm in a world of colleagues. I really need to step out, even if it's just a little bit of time, mm -hmm. taking a walk with a colleague, um, going to a colloquia for an hour, just getting even if you're an interview, pushing yourself out to a little bit of social networking, which I think is important. Yes. And I love the, the bi-directionality of that, that as leaders and more senior faculty, we should be having an eye out, especially for our new faculty um, hires and people who are early career to not only model that behavior of inviting and being a part of a community, but making sure that they um you know, it's one thing to do the drive-by. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing fine. How are you? That kind of polite nod, but actually doing something a little bit more as leaders that we can encourage them to come out of their shell, to come out of the office, to to do, to get out of their comfort, their comfort zone. So I think it's not only the onus is not only on the early career faculty member, but on us as leaders to not only model that behavior, but make sure that we're not drowned, you know, burying and and uh, watching the drowning of, of faculty who are who aren't waving, they are drowning. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, thank you. That's all very helpful. And the last two are around balance, and one of them uh, is don't work on fifteen things equally all at once. Nothing is ever going to get done. And um, I think you get better at juggling multiple roles and tasks over time, but it's probably a challenge for everybody during their career. And one thing I've I've picked up from a colleague who's great at time management is to pick one thing, and this is something I started doing too, is pick one thing that matters out of all the responsibilities and tasks that you have and try to make sure you're devoting you know, about a quarter of your time to that one thing and splitting up the three-quarter time among the 14 other things that you need to get done. And then once that thing gets out the door, you're going to feel more energized and you can move on to the next thing that's most important and, and a high priority. So it's kind of sort of sorting out what's a priority that I'd like to get done here. Um, I know for writing too, in terms of uh, getting writing done, I put a timer on and try to spend just 30 minutes every day working on a writing task or reading to get ready for writing. Something that that sort of nails me, my, you know, nails me in front of the computer and gets that kind of work done. So the idea of, I guess, don't spread yourself too thin. Try to find time for the thing that's the priority and the most important thing and set a timer and work on it every day till you get it out the door. Establishing good habits, good academic hygiene habits. We talk about that in WAGs, writing accountability groups and the, the wagyourwork.com website that we have a, a paper and a book here. And, you know, Mary Dean, you've just kind of hit that nail on the head that if you, if something's important, you do it every day, make it a daily habit. Jerry Seinfeld talks about that. and and um, uh, Paul Sylvia, how to write a lot. That's just, you make it part of your life. You schedule it in your calendar every day and you don't binge write. You don't write for long, unsustainable times. You just write for 30 minutes, 20 minutes a day. And that will get you into the habit of doing it regularly. 
and you'll make progress versus binging for six hours every two or three months. <laughs> I love it. And a lot of campuses now will have accountability groups or a college or a department where you, if you have two or three people that are meeting with you, you can make your own accountability group, but often there's scholarly writing retreats or um, a week-long challenge or a semester-long challenge where you meet up once a week with a group and sort of talk about your goals, set some time you're going to write and just keep meeting continually. So it's that idea, you're right, everybody talks about it, you know scheduling it every day or at least a couple of times a week. And if you fall off the wagon, you know what? You get back up and you start over again. That's right. Good. And number 10. Number 10 is have a life. Uh, <laughs> and take care of yourself and your life outside of work. Because uh, if you're fatigued, whether it's emotional or physical, um, work's going to be an effort. You know, it's, you've got to put on a public face. You've got to smile and chat at the mailbox. You got to stand in front of the classroom. And if you're not taking care of yourself, all of that becomes really hard to do. So that notion of filling your tank in whatever way you can, whether it's going to a gym or seeing a show or jogging or getting out of town for a weekend, um, playing with your kids, playing with somebody else's kids. Um, if you're drained, you just can't be imaginative in the way you need to be to be, you know, the kind of academic you want to be engaged and um, and your teaching and research require right. that kind of energy. So um, if you take care of yourself, you have more time and energy to do what matters. And so that was sort of my last one. Um, despite all the pressures, you really have to carve out some time outside of work. Um, or work just becomes less fulfilling. And I think you know that more than anyone in, in the medical field. I know I have a daughter who's a young doctor, and uh, it's an incredibly demanding career. Mm -hmm. She's a primary care physician. She has three little kids um, and uh, a spouse who's very busy too. So um, I'm always saying to her, you know, take some time for yourself. She's a knitter, so that's her way to decompress. But everybody has to find their way. Otherwise, the work just becomes exhausting. You, you know, Mary Dean, I just love that I have to remind everybody that you wrote this essay in 2004, 18 years ago. No. Issues are still timely. And who would have thought even more important, given the past two years with the, the COVID pandemic and having a life and burnout in, and in academic medicine. Tate Shanafelt talks about the leading factors associated with physician burnout. And one is not spending time doing the things that you love. And you said 20, 25% of your time. He talks about if you're not spending at least 20% of your work effort on the things that bring you joy, that's where you're going to you know, burn out. And I love the Oprah Winfrey comment that uh, her quote attributed to her is that she said, if you don't want to burn out, stop living like you're on fire. And we all, and especially after these past two years, have done that. So I just think it's just amazing to me how 18 years later, these top 10 things, they just, they're so timeless. They're so fundamental to, uh, I, I just think it's a, such a great contribution. And I'm so appreciative that you put that out here. And the fact that it stands the test of time shows us how these are these 
these issues, these, these reminders are just so, again, core part of who we are and helping each other out and, and being the best we can be by remembering these things that kind of unite all of us. So I, I just really, really appreciate that you did this. And I just think I'm just blown away that it's standing the test of time. It's just so important still. Well, thank you. Maybe I should update it <laughs> 20 years later. Yeah, and I always remind faculty of, of, an, of Mark Twain saying, he was talking about Richard Wagner's music and said, it's better than it sounds. And I always say, you know, for, for many of us, an academic career is better than it sounds. You know, we may complain about it, but if you ask faculty in the end, um, they will say, you know, it was many of them that it was the greatest job in the world, that it was really, um, uh, it brought so much satisfaction to their lives. They wouldn't have changed it for another career. And I think that's encouraging too for early career faculty members, especially now when higher education and healthcare are, are really under some duress and attack. We need to remember um, the joys and the satisfactions of this career, which is all about you know um, supporting others as well as enjoying our own work. This has been really inspiring. And I, I'm just so grateful for the, the words of wisdom, for what you've contributed to the field. Folks, you have to go online and look at Mary Dean Sorsonelli, all her books uh, about faculty development and writing and best practices and leadership and changing expectations, super, super cool things. And again, you can email her if you want to get this list right in your inbox. And that was at Dean, D-E-A-N-E, at umass.edu. Again, Dean, D-E-A-N-E at umass.edu. It's Mary Dean Sorsonelli. Dr. Sorsonelli, thank you so much for being on the Faculty Factory podcast. I really appreciate you. Kimberly, thank you too. I really appreciate you. You're a wonderful podcast leader, coordinator, facilitator. <laughs> You've done a great job. I'm glad to have joined you. Glad we, we finally made it work. So thanks so much. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory Podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.